Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And when you find Matthew 1, please stand with me as we read God's Word. We're beginning a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew today. And because it starts with a genealogy, which some consider boring, uh, let me say up front that every word of Scripture is necessary. Every word of Scripture is important. It's given for a purpose. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's without error, and it is there for a reason. So let's read. We're going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amon, and Amon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel became the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given it for a purpose. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to that purpose this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this study, I want to start by looking at uh, Matthew at a glance. Uh, Some big picture items to keep in mind as we go along. First of all, the author. The author is Matthew, also known as Levi, the tax gatherer. He was Jewish by birth, Roman by employment. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Now, none of the Gospels name its author. But Matthew's name is attached to all the early copies of manuscripts. And the early church fathers unanimously agreed that he was the author. When was it written? Most likely sometime before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. Now, who was the audience? Who was it written to? 
Some think the Gospels were written to specific groups of people, to narrow communities of people, a view that's gradually being rejected in favor of seeing them as being written to a larger audience, a broader audience, and that the attended recipients were actually any and every church to which the gospel might circulate. So if you think of the gospels as being written to the church at large, you also have to notice, though, that each has its own individual and unique themes and emphasis areas, a distinct message. Three of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, share the same basic narrative format, the narrative line. They portrayed Jesus from his start on earth till his ascension to heaven. They're called the synoptics because they are accounts that look at things together. John stands alone in how he portrays Jesus from coming from heaven to earth. But together, the Gospels have a unified picture of Jesus Christ. Mark focuses on trusting Jesus in the midst of suffering and and persecution. Luke focuses on God's plan for the gospel to go not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Part two of, the, of Luke is the book of Acts. John emphasizes Jesus as God, the one sent from the Father to bring eternal life. But what about the message of Matthew? The message of Matthew is focused on Jesus being king. Jesus as the sovereign one, the revealed and rejected and soon-to-be-returning king. Matthew is the gospel that is most concerned with Jewish issues. But Matthew also shows an emphasis on who Jesus is, on, on community. The only gospel directly uh, speak to the church. Uh, he focuses on discipleship. He focuses on missions. But above all, Matthew emphasizes the royal aspect of Jesus' work and his character with such phrases like, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see that in chapters 3 and 4 and 10. And the phrase like, the kingdom of God has come upon you. In chapter 12, verse 28. Or the son of man coming in his kingdom. Chapter 16. Or your kingdom. Chapter 20. Or in my Father's kingdom, chapter 26. And even the conclusion of the book that, that uh, shows Jesus as having all authority in heaven and on earth. In Matthew 28, verse 18. But Jesus is the king. Now we don't know a lot about being under the rulership of a king here in America with our decentralized political system. Having one supreme ruler to which we answer. And when you think of human kings, whether they're present or past, some are good. You know, some are bad, some are evil. Uh, You see that in the Old Testament record of kings. There were good ones, there were bad ones. But Jesus, being God, as king, is always good. The one to whom full allegiance is due. Now, Matthew chapter 1 deals with both the background and the birth of Jesus. The incarnation, uh, God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, in, in these two ways, the background as well as the birth, Today we're going to look at the background. Next week we'll look at his birth. So let's look at verse 1. It starts and it says, The record of the genealogy of of Jesus the Messiah, uh, literally the book of the genealogy, it traces, in fact, they're the exact words 
found in the book of Genesis several times in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Um, this word uh, beginning, uh, genealogy means gen- is Genesis in Greek, beginning. Uh, it's talking about his background, his origin, humanly speaking. We know where he came from in relation to God. He is God. He was always with God. He was there at creation. He brought the world into existence. But with regard to his earthly origin, which is what this genealogy uh, treats, if Jesus was to be, be proclaimed as king, there had to be proof that he came from a royal family line. And verse 1 gives his identity. He's referred to by several titles. First, the one that we're most commonly uh, acquainted with, Jesus. From the Greek equivalent of Jeshua, which means Jehovah or Yahweh saves. God saves. It points to the fact that Jesus is the Savior. It's, it's uh, right there in verse 21 of chapter 1. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's the Savior. Now, the second term that's given to him is the Messiah. The Messiah. It's, um, it's equal to the word Christ. So, Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Uh, The Greek word is Christos, where we get our word uh, Christ. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Mashiach, the English, where we get our English word Messiah. And what it means is anointed one. He is the Messiah, he's the Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we are saying God saves, and he is the anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. All of Israel's prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. And Jesus was anointed as all three, prophet and priest and king. Now the third name that he is given is the son of David. He is called the son of David, which shows that Jesus is the sovereign king. The Messiah's royal line began with David. A Jew would trace the Messiah through David. The One of the purposes of Matthew's gospel is to show Jesus' right to Israel's kingship. And Matthew substantiates Jesus' statement to Pilate where he said in John 18, verse 37, you correctly say that I am a king. You know, above, uh, even above Jesus' cross, uh, they wrote uh, derisively, the king of the Jews. But Jesus says to Pilate, you, you are correct in saying that I am a king. For this I was born. And for this I came into the world. He's the king. And he's called the son of David, which shows that he is the king. Now, the fourth title he's given is the son of Abraham. Uh, That means he's the promised one. He's the covenant-keeping savior. See, Matthew emphasizes Jesus first in his role as savior and lord, uh, king, son of David, and then his work as the savior of all who would believe, calling him the son of Abraham, because Abraham was given the promise that in him all the nations of of the world would be blessed. Now, one of the things a good Jew would ask about the Messiah or anyone claiming to know who the Messiah was is, is he a son of Abraham and is he of the house of David? You need to answer that question. The question was completely valid and it was expected because God had given such huge promises both to Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 and 13 and 15 and 17 and 22 as well as his promise to David. In fact, look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, 
God promises something to David. Verse 16. God is making a covenant. He tells him, I'm going to give you rest. And I'm going to make a house for you. And I'm going to raise up your descendants after you. And look what he says in verse 16 to him. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. It was the promise to David that his throne would be established forever. So you've got the terms uh, that Jesus is identified by. Jesus, the Messiah, son of Abraham, son of David. Now in verses 2 through 16, you see Jesus' family tree by name, showing his human lineage traced through Abraham and David. 42 generations, that's a lot. But see, the Jews were really into pedigrees. They're really into the, the background of a person. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus observed that in New Testament times, many families kept very detailed uh, records of family lines. They were uh, highly valued ancestral records that the family would keep. They were used not just as a, a handy-dandy reference tool. They were used to communicate a person's social standing. To, to give uh, footing for a person's status. And if a person's family line was prominent, then they were important. Now Matthew and Luke both give genealogies of Jesus' family line. And they do it in different ways. Luke's is seen in, in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 28. But Matthew presents Jesus' line in a descending order from Abraham to David through Joseph to Jesus and links Jesus to both Abraham and David in that way. Now Luke does something different. Luke traces it through Mary in, in an ascending order and in the backwards order from Jesus going through David and Abraham and not just uh, stopping there, but going all the way back to Adam. See, Matthew was concerned with showing that Jesus was the king that Israel was waiting for. But Luke, on the other hand, was writing to show that Jesus went all the way back to Adam. But what it shows is that Jesus was a blood descendant of David through Mary. And the legal descendant of David through Joseph, who was not his early father. But through both family lines, this is pretty cool, you can see that Jesus was perfectly genealogically qualified as the Messiah. Now there are three segments. The first segment in this genealogy, I hope you love genealogies as much as me, uh, these are wonderful. I've been reading, as I'm reading through the Bible, I'm reading in First Chronicles right now, and it's just genealogy after genealogy. If you think some of these names are hard to pronounce, oh my, you just go into First Chronicles. You wouldn't name your kids any of those names. I mean, at least some of these names, you know, you name your kids by. But the first segment is Abraham to David. That's verses 2 through 6. Now, I want to point a couple things out here. First of all, the usage of the name Abraham. That's very important. It's, it doesn't use Abram 
but the covenant name Abraham, which signifies the covenant promises made to Abraham by God that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And we know God is faithful to all his promises. None of them are going to drop to the ground and not come true. They're all true, and in his grace, he will bring them all to pass. Every one of them. Now, the name Abraham is significant. It signifies the covenant. Another thing is the way that Judah is singled out from his brothers because of the messianic promise of sovereignty that was given to him. In fact, go to Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis 49, Jacob had gotten all his sons together. He was going to give them blessings. To Judah, a very interesting blessing in verse 10. Here's what it says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, code word, Jesus. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. To him shall be the obedience. So Judah is given sovereignty. So Matthew has got to show that Jesus is a descendant of Judah. And there's another interesting note with regard to Perez in, in verse 3. Mention is made of Judah's twins, uh, Perez and Zerah. But the genealogy is only traced through Perez. Jewish tradition was that uh, they would trace the royal line to Perez. In fact, go to Ruth. Go to the book of Ruth. The last place in the Old Testament where the, 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 the royal line is listed is in the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Now, the term son of Perez was actually an expression rabbis would use to refer to the coming Messiah. So here in this first segment, you've got the covenant, you've got sovereignty, you've got a royal line, all pointing to Messiah. So, so far, so good, right? But this is as far as Ruth takes it. See, what we're going to see next is that Matthew takes it from, from there all the way to Jesus. But look at Ruth, chapter 4, verse 12. It says, Moreover, your house, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. That's a, uh, a word to Boaz. Now look at verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and Hezron to, was Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. So the Old Testament leaves it at David. Matthew takes it from David and brings it home to Jesus, all the way to Jesus. So now the next part of the genealogy is the next segment in the, in the, in the pathway to Jesus, and it's from David to Babylon. David to Babylon, and if you think about this, only David is called king. Look at verse 6. Jesse was the father of David, the king. Well, there were other kings in this genealogy. He's the only one listed as king, even though he wasn't the only king mentioned. For example, Solomon was a king, but he is not called a king here. 
because he's not the one that fulfilled the promise to David that was made in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. No one was the fulfillment of the promises to David until Jesus. A question we probably need to answer is why was Israel deported to Babylon? What's the whole deal with Babylon? You'll see in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1, that it was because of unfaithfulness to God that they were, they were carried away into exile. That it was due to their unfaithfulness to God that God gave them over to be disciplined due to their sin. But God was not through with them. God was not through with his people. He was still acting in grace on their behalf. Still at work in their hearts to, uh, to turn them back to him. Now, when you think about the last segment in verses 12 through 16, there's one thing you need to see there. The primary thing I want you to see is, regard, is with regard to Jesus' earthly father, Jesus. Joseph, excuse me, Joseph. There is a very important change in wording in Matthew 1.16. Now, before this verse, the Greek word uh, ganao, which means was born or begat, if you're reading the King James, is used in the active voice with the husband as the subject. But in verse 16, it's used in the passive voice. It's not connected to Jesus. To Joseph, excuse me. To Joseph. Joseph is called the husband of Mary. The pronoun by whom is feminine. It's important because it refers to Mary. See, what Matthew is doing is he is hinting at what he's going to say in verse 23, which is this. Quoting from Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's, he's hinting at the virgin birth of Christ. Matthew makes it clear that Jesus' biological connection uh, to the family is only through Mary. He acknowledges the miraculous character of, of the Messiah's birth. Now, when you think about this genealogy, you could leave it there. But there are some things we need to see still. There are some notable inclusions. Some people in there that are surprises. There are also some notable exclusions. Our history buffs may have already figured that out. Uh, in this genealogy, the surprises are five women... Notable because women were not included in genealogies in, in Middle Eastern times. Uh, two of the women were foreigners. Three of them were marked by a sin. Uh, but God's grace, by God's grace, they were all instrumental in God's purpose in sending Christ. The ladies are Tamar, who reminds us of Judah's failings. You've got Rahab, uh, the harlot. You've got Ruth, who was a Moabite, and as a Moabite, the recipient of a special curse. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 23. You've got the wife of Uriah, which we know was Bathsheba, who was involved with David's sin. And you've got Mary, the fifth lady in this genealogy. You've got Mary, who fulfilled Isaiah 7.14, that the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son. And she fulfilled the promises of God given in Genesis chapter 3. Look, go back with me to Genesis chapter 3. After the fall, 
And God was doling out the consequences of sin. There was this huge ray of grace. This, this, this promise of salvation that would be to come. Look at verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. And between your seed and her seed, speaking of Jesus, who was to come. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Promise salvation. Back in Genesis chapter 3. And how about Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4? Let's look at that. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. I love this verse. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. Literally, uh, the, the Greek word is ekbalo. He threw him from heaven to earth. He, he cast him here and says he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Uh, Mary perfectly fulfilled those things. Now, also in this genealogy, there are some interesting exclusions. Obviously, they're not there, so there's no statement, by the way, so-and-so was left out because <laughs> he was a horse thief or something. And nothing like that. Now, there's several reasons why people would be left out. Uh, several possible reasons. One, it was common to leave names out of genealogies in those days. The purpose of the list was to prove one's ancestry, and so every name wasn't necessary to do that. Another reason is that Matthew was giving 14 names per division. So to reach that number, some had to be left out. And maybe the most probable is that the, the, there is a, the reputation of some that may explain their absence. For example, Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, evil men. They were deleted for a purpose. We don't know what it was. God does. God knows what purpose he left him out for. But the end of this genealogy points to Christ's purpose in history. In verse 1, it's the record of the genealogy, the genesis, the origin of Jesus the Messiah. Verse 17 says, So then all the generations, all the origins, from Abraham to David, 14, David to deportation to Babylon, 14, deportation to Babylon to Messiah, 14 generations. What, what you see in, in, this, in this long list of people um, tracing Jesus' family line back is, is God's perfect plan. God's perfect timing in history. In every generation. In spite of what went on. You think about the people in Christ's family tree. In spite of those who were immoral, which God does not condone, God is glorified. By having them have a part in the family line of Jesus. Everyone in the line was a sinner. Abraham was. David was. We can point out a lot of things about both, of men, both men that were not stellar. But you see God's purpose in history. 
you see God's sovereignty, his providence, that he's in control, that his timing is perfect, that he does all things well, that nothing escapes his notice, that he opens doors no one can shut, that no purpose of his can be thwarted. If God's got a purpose, no one can stop it. No one. That every family on earth derives its name from Jesus. We see that in Ephesians 3. The number one question in our day. The number one question is, who is in control? Who's in control? We are witnessing in our day a clash of worldviews. Two ways to live. For yourself or for God. One, one worldview says man is sovereign. He is the captain of his fate. The other view sees God on the throne. You either believe Jesus is God and king or you don't. It's as simple as that. You either acknowledge him or you don't. And if you don't, you'll run the risk of either ignoring God or ridiculing him, blaspheming him. Just this very week, I heard several people in positions of power and influence ridicule and mock God, his word, and his followers. If that doesn't make you angry, I don't know what will. There are many who, as Romans 1 says, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Sure, we all sin and we have issues and we try to, we want, but, we, but those who know Jesus, we're saying we want Jesus to be in control. We want him to truly be Lord in our life. We don't see it. We're not consistent all the time. So we don't see that all the time. But we want to acknowledge that and we want to trust God to work. But there are many who suppress the truth and unrighteousness and have evil motive, evil intent. Those who think they can de-God God. You can't do that. He is God no matter what anyone says. If you look at verse 15, uh, 17 and, and you see the summary, this fact of all these generations, count them up, 42 generations. You could see it as, a, as a, just a list of relatives, you know. Some ancient names, some of which we can't say. We don't know how to say them, pronounce them. But what this is, it's so much more than that. This genealogy is a beautiful reminder of God's grace that is greater than all our sin. God's grace. See, the focus on names, there are so many names here. Many that we are very familiar with, others we know nothing about. But the focus on names show that people matter to God, that he values every human life. Yours, the unborn. All human life is valuable to God. Each one made in his his image. And while we may rebel, God's desire is for our repentance, for us to come back to him. Jesus is the friend of sinners. The one who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The focus on generations. The focus on generations show that families matter to God. 
The people in this genealogy are identified by name. The father of, the son of, the wife of. Defined by generational and relational connectedness. Intergenerational connectedness is important to God. Passing on the faith from generation to generation is what God intends. And while there are pockets of unfaithfulness and ungodliness throughout Israel's history and throughout human history that affected succeeding generations negatively, there are also instances of faithfulness and godliness that affected future generations positively. What about the interesting twists in Matthew's genealogy? Including women, all of whom had connections to rumors of illegitimacy. Conspicuously pointing these out shows that God includes people of all backgrounds. All backgrounds. He chooses unlikely people. He does unexpected things for his glory. That should make us really glad. Those of us who feel disqualified because of ways we've lived, things we've done. You see, Jesus chose sinners to be in his family tree. That was all he had to work with, you know, uh, on the human side of things. Uh, He chose sinners by his grace to be in his family tree, to be his relatives, and he chooses us by his grace to be in his family. Jesus truly is the king of grace. As Bruce Demarest wrote, God has acted in grace to save his wayward image bearers. The gospel message is all about what God has done. It's what our youth shared so clearly and so well last week. That God, who is holy, made a way for us who were dead in sin and without hope in the world. Objects of wrath, with no ability to save ourselves, no ability to rescue ourselves. God who loves us and is full of mercy sent Jesus to earth as as God in the flesh to live a perfect life and to die on the cross for our sin. And that all who trust in Jesus Christ alone, apart from anything they could do, receive forgiveness of sins, are saved from the wrath of God against sin. Freed from the power of sin and freed from the penalty of sin. And we receive Christ's righteousness, the great exchange. He takes our, our false righteousness that is like filthy rags and he gives us his true righteousness. In the gospel, God restores man to the, his original purpose of reflecting God's glory. And he's at work conforming believers to the image of Christ. That's the work he will finish. And that's the gospel message that we must live on a daily basis and then trust God to help us share on a daily basis. See, if you know Jesus, God wants you to grow in him, uh, move in his direction, progress in Christ-likeness as he does that work. And when you speak of Jesus being the king of grace, you can stand amazed, amazed that that God knows your name, that your identity uh, is important to him, your name matters, you're significant to him, that he's at work in you and that he will bring it to completion, that he who started the work will finish the work. 
And he asks you to follow him fully. To follow him with all your heart. Total trust and love and commitment. As I've been reading through 1 Chronicles, this, just this very morning I came across 1 Chronicles 12 and verse 33 and 38, which is when David was being made king by all the people that God sent to him. And they, it says they helped David with an undivided heart. They helped David with a perfect heart. David, the king at that time. Jesus, the son of David, the, the, the real king over all the universe, wants us to trust him and to follow him with an undivided heart, with a perfect heart. He wants us to trust him. But how about if you don't know Jesus today? How about if you're not one who would say, well, I don't, you're not one that would say that, that you believe um, that Jesus is the one that should be in control of your life. I just say this, Jesus loves you. And he wants you by his enabling to trust and to believe and to bow at his throne, to acknowledge his kingship, to leave all your excuses and objections behind, and to simply trust that he is the way. He is the only way to heaven. He knows your name. And all that stuff about your background and your family history, he knows all about that too. Uh, Don't let your background keep you from responding to God. By faith, through Jesus Christ. Don't think that God rejects you because of what you or someone else has done. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy that he saves us. And to all, to all, God says, leave your sin behind. Leave your past behind. Think about these people in Jesus' family tree. Leave your sin behind. Leave your past behind. Come clean with God. You're not going to surprise Him with anything. Allow Him to banish all rivals to His throne in your life. And free you to experience the abundant life, the joy that is found only in Jesus Christ. The Christian life is not without hardship, but it is filled with joy in the midst of hardship. The one thing you're most disappointed about, the one thing you are most discouraged about, the thing that crushes you to even think about, the regrets you have. You know, if only I'd done such and such or so and so, that things would be different financially or physically, or relationally, or spiritually. You know, if only. Just stop. Just stop. And give all those if onlys to God. Lay them at His feet. Trust God's purpose in your life because He is orchestrating history. And He is orchestrating your story. Jesus is the King you can follow. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, the King of grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you truly would be experienced in our lives as sovereign. We know you are sovereign. You are greater than us. You are above us. You are beyond us. 
You are ruling over us, and at the same time, you are intimately acquainted with us. You are concerned about us. And that we know, Lord Jesus, that you are advocating for us, that you're with us. And we pray, Lord, that we would truly know you as the King of grace. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.